Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 503. So uh, I've started a new show at Nerdmelt. Um, that's Nerd Showroom at Meltdown Comics. Uh, every couple of weeks, we do a show called Beta Test, where it's me and two other comics, each doing 20 minutes each of brand new material. Because it is a real pain in the ass to uh, come up with new stuff. So I figured, hey, I'll start a workshop show. So uh, if you go to nerdmeltla.com, every other week you can see who's going to be on. Um, tonight I'm doing a show with Jonah Ray and uh, the Sklar Brothers. And uh, past guests have included uh, folks like Matt Bronger and Ron Funches and Jackie Cation and uh, a lot of people you see on At Midnight. So it's a free show. Wanted it to be free so people didn't pay to watch comedians work out material. But so far it's been really fun. Um, the tickets usually get snatched up pretty fast on the site because they are free. But uh, there is a standby line. And the standby line, if you just show up, usually gets in. So... There you go. Uh, beta test. NerdmeltLA.com. I'd like to thank Stamps.com for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. Now, it's almost tax time. I'm so sorry to inform you of that. That's about a week away. So the post office is going to be a giant crap sack of, uh, really, of anxiety. So use Stamps.com. Stamps.com will send you a free digital scale so that if you need to weigh stuff, all the crap you have to mail in, then you can print out the exact postage you need uh, right at your desk. It's convenient. It's easy to use. You use your computer, your printer, and then you just hand it to the mail carrier, and then that's it. Then there's no more waiting in the post office. The lines are about to be horrific. So uh, go to Stamps.com. Enter the promo code NERDIST. You're going to get a no-risk trial, including a $110 bonus offer and a digital scale uh, up to $55 of free postage. So Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in NERDIST. Thank you to Stamps.com for continuing to support the NERDIST podcast. This episode is uh, Mike Mignola, who created Hellboy. And uh, it is the 20th anniversary of Hellboy, which was just as crazy to Mike as it is to the rest of us. 20 years of Hellboy, but uh, really cool, really interesting guy. They did a, a Hellboy day at uh, Meltdown Comics, and he did some signings and stuff. And so uh, and he came on to the Nerdist Podcast. So here it is, episode number 503, with Mike Mignola. Now entering Nerdist.com. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I guess I'll sit in this chair since you're already there. Hey. Oh, is this, your, is, this, is this not my chair? No, no well, normally we offer the comfy chair to the guests. Oh, alright. Do you, do then, you, I, then I'll go to sleep. Do you, oh, you will go to sleep? Yeah. What if, we just, what if I just let you fall asleep and then it was That'd just 40 minutes? See, just as interesting. And then just, just shook you awake, like, hey, we're done now. Oh, yeah, so you get these startled, no, you get those startled responses. <laughs> what? Where am I? You just started answering the question that you were dreaming about instead of the one you asked. <laughs> we'll just see if we can get you in that weird space between awake and sleep. Oh, you say all the you, shit you're you just not saying, supposed to. you start to. saying weird shit. Yeah. Oh, Del exactly. Toro stories. De- oh. No. That, there must be... I love Guillermo. He's yeah. been on the podcast a few times, and uh, he's such a fucking perfect guy. I mean, he's exactly the guy you want doing what it is that he does. Yes, he is so. He's not um, really suited for anything else. No, I don't even. What else would Guillermo do if he weren't I if he weren't directing? Know. I don't know. 
But I just like to see a director go into not because I think a lot of people go, well, I'm a director, I'll do action or genre or romance, you know. But it's just like he's of this world, and that's what he does, and he does it beautifully. I, yeah, yeah. How did you invite? How did you guys get involved the first time? He he heard that the, somebody had the rights to do Hellboy, so he approached Dark Horse and said, "I'm the guy to do this," because he was a fan of the comic. Yeah. So he came to them. Uh, I met with them. I said, that sounds great. Good luck. Because <laughs> you want to make an $80 million movie starring Ron Perlman. I don't see any problems. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure we'll be on a set next week. Uh, yeah. How did it happen then? Because you've met him. I mean, he, if anybody can charm anybody into something, including parting with money to make a movie that nobody wants to make, you know, he's the guy. So he, uh, he just... He went around till he found the studio where somebody said, I don't get it, but you seem to know what you're doing, so here's $60 million instead of $80 million. Okay. And he went, okay. Now, was this, um, was this being developed after Pan's Labyrinth came out? Or no, was no, it- this was long before. Uh, the first Hellboy movie was, he hadn't done much of anything. He had done... Kronos? Kronos and Mimic. Yeah. Yeah, so coming off Mimic, which nobody cared about... Uh, actually, no, the thing is, when we first talked, he, would, he had come off Mimic, but nothing happened for six years. In the meantime, he went and made Blade 2, and part of why he did Blade 2, according to him, is to show everybody they could trust him with money to make a big action movie. Because yeah. Mimic was a little monster movie. Right. So he wanted to make a big, ballsy action movie and position Ron Perlman as something other than the guy from Beauty and the Beast. Right. So you give Ron a prominent role in that. So when you tell people, we want Ron Perlman, they go, oh, the guy from Blade 2. Not, wasn't that guy the Beauty and the Beast guy? Yeah, well, also, I mean, this is... When you're... Because now Hellboy is at the 20th, the 20th anniversary, Right. So when you're first making this, do you ever envision, well, someday this will be anything other than a comic book? I didn't even think it would be a comic for very long. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? No, it, you call some. I mean, it just never occurred to me. I, I've never really thought that uh, anything I came up with was ever going to work. I'm always assuming the worst. So when I came up with Hellboy, I thought, well, okay, fortunately I've got somebody who's willing to publish it once, but it's certainly not going to make any money. They're certainly not going to want to do it again. So um, I wasn't really looking beyond these first four issues of a comic. And I think it would have taken the technology that we have that came later and then also someone like Guillermo to be able to – because it with the style of the comic in the wrong hands, it could get – Really hokey in a way that's like, oh, that doesn't look good in the. In a- yeah, I, I remember various various conversations over the years of different ways to do Hellboy, and at one point Guillermo wanted to do him as a puppet. <laughs> wow! And I remember I, he said it was Jim Cameron who said, "If it's going to be a love story, you can't have one of the two characters be a puppet." <laughs> um, yeah, it it. Uh, yeah, it just never occurred to me. Even you know when they, when uh, Dark Horse approached me about optioning it for a film, I thought, well, this is this is easy, safe money because there's no danger of anybody ever making a movie, and and getting option money, which is here, just let us have the rights, and a couple of years you get the rights back, free money, think, do this forever, right? A couple grand extra every couple of years, that's that's easy money. No one's ever going to make this thing. Um, and nobody was more amazed than me than it, you know, when it got done. It, it was funny, actually, when Blade 2 came out, because I worked with Guillermo on Blade 2. Um, I, I kept saying, oh, he's never going to make this movie. He's never going to make Hellboy. And then Blade 2 opened, and it opened number one for a few minutes. And he called me up and said, if they don't green light Hellboy now, they never will. And it was a weird moment, because I realized, oh, somewhere in those years... He convinced me that even though I didn't consciously think it, I was thinking, oh, they're going to make the movie. So when he said, if they don't make it now, they never will, I'm like, oh, shit, you mean they might not make the movie? And I'm like, wait, when did I start thinking that they were going to make the movie? Uh, but he, you know, he was, he was always very realistic, but he was very determined. And, uh, yeah, he talked somebody into doing it. 
Did you essentially just say, well, you obviously have a vision for this. Do what you want to do. Or were you pretty? Yeah, it was, it was funny. When I first talked to him, I actually said, here's. Well, I never thought anybody would make a movie. I said, here's something I thought. If it were ever to be made in a movie, you could make these changes to it. And they were really pretty radical changes. Uh, and he actually said, no, I want to do it more like the comic. At which point I said, good luck. <laughs> when you're writing the comic, do, do you, are you almost daring it to not be made in any other medium? No, I, I've, never, I've never really thought about any other medium when I'm doing the comic. I just, when I'm doing the comic, I'm doing the comic. Uh, and my, you know, and which I think separates me from 90% of the comic book guys these days because every comic I see out there seems like it's, trying, it's a pitch for a TV show or oh, a yeah. movie. Well, the, the, same, the same trend happened in comedy in the 90s when, you know, every, a lot of comedians were getting sitcom deals. Mm. And so then there was a, there was a wave of comedians that just kind of wanted to develop their five or ten minutes to then just become... Uh, I'm that know. guy. I, I'm going to go up and I'm going to do a set that's going to let you know what sitcom I should Exactly. Be. And then you will give it a quick name and put my, incorporate my name into it somehow. And then that's your sitcom right there. So you, you're saying that there was a very, there's a very similar thing happening in comics. Well, it does seem, especially with the guys who are doing creator-owned stuff. And I, I shouldn't say 90%, but I do see a lot of stuff where they're clearly pitches for a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, I mean, in comics, that's generally considered these days like, you know, winning the lottery, which I understand because also, I mean, heaven forbid, I'd love to think I'd still be doing Hellboy if there was no movie, but you don't know. I mean, there's so much product out there. A movie does help, you know, for character recognition. And you do, you, you, uh, you write and illustrate. Yeah. Yeah, which is, I think, a great combination. I'm reading... Um, Sweet Tooth right now, uh-huh. at Jeff Lemire's book, and, it, and I, I just, I love the idea, I feel like I can really tell the difference between when someone is just writing a script and then handing off the art to someone else, versus watching the way the, the, the creator actually expresses visually, because there's no one else that can get in your head and know exactly what it is that you're trying to express I, when they're reading a page. I remember, yeah, because I had been drawing comics for 10 years before I did Hellboy, and when I started writing it myself... I realized there's so much you can do, but also it means you make up stories that you want to draw. Yeah. You, you cut out all this stuff. I mean, I've written for other people, and when I'm writing for other people, Hellboy's got a girlfriend, and you can have him fight 60,000 skeletons, all shit that you won't do <laughs> if you know at some point you've got to draw it. <laughs> so you'll come up with bits, and you go, I don't want to draw that, or I don't know how to draw that, and so you kind of tailor it to what you do. So you get the kind of the, you know, you get the, the artist's head on paper without, you know, fighting with scenes you don't know how to do. Yeah. I mean, there's some laziness that can go on there because, you know, we don't have a lot of cars in the comic if I'm drawing it. Uh, we don't have a lot of <laughs> girls in the comic. You just get this weird, oh, this is really, the, you know, what the artist can do. That's but, really that's really. But funny. it is uniquely one person. And, and if you get more than that involved, I mean, I've seen, you know, two-man operations that really work, but a lot of time it just becomes a job. It becomes a guy doing the script that he got in the mail. Sure. And, and it's different. Well, you also understand the essence of the story and the essence of the character, and there are probably ways that you can express that visually that no one else would really quite understand. Yeah, and I, I know also when I'm doing stuff, even though I've written it for myself, as I'm doing it, I'm constantly changing it. You're refining it, you know, which you can't do if you're, you're working with a script somebody else got. So you'll draw stuff and you go, oh, yeah, I like that drawing, but it changes the line from this to this or, you know, whatever. It's, 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 it's much more fluid and much more malleable. Well, in your mind, how did proto-Hellboy evolve into current Hellboy? Like, what, are, there, are there things that you immediately could go, oh, yeah, well, this is different and that's different and now I approach it this way now? His arms got a lot skinnier, and his hand got bigger. Um, it's, I mean, when I started, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I knew the kinds of stories I wanted to tell, but I had no idea who the character was. And, as, and having never written before, I found myself in a strange position where 
I would draw a scene of two characters having a conversation or two characters fighting, and then I had no idea what they were talking about. So I had to make up dialogue because I had a four-page sequence of guys fighting, and I didn't, they had to be saying something. <laughs> so that's how Hellboy became the Beast of the Apocalypse, because the other character said, hey, you're the Beast of the Apocalypse. I didn't know what else to write. I just, I mean, if I, if, if it had been, you know, Spider-Man dialogue, it'd be more, you know, gotcha, oh, you can't get me kind of dialogue. <laughs> but since I don't know how to do that stuff, I can only write big speechy kind of ominous things. And so Hellboy's, what Hellboy was changed when I found I had to script these scenes and suddenly I'm going, oh, really? That's what he is? Oh, okay. So it's, it's kind of like the snowball rolling downhill, picking up speed. You kind of go, I didn't mean to start an avalanche, but as these things go along and they kind of take on a life of their own, uh, it's, it's a very weird process for me where I sit back and I go, I didn't see that coming, even though I did it. Sure. Well, yeah, because once you sort of start the process of something, it's, I think some people look at the creative process of just like, oh, well, you, you just put everything perfectly formed in one moment and that's it. And not this process of how it, that, that whatever the thing you're creating begins to take on a life of its own and then starts to inform you what it needs or where it wants to go. I mean, I'm not, I don't even think this is new agey. It's just part of the creative process. You just don't know until you start it. It, it really is strange. It really, I, I found that to be the most fascinating thing about writing is that this stuff does go off in directions. You can kind of steer a little bit, but at some point you kind of go, it really wants to veer this way, so I'm going to let it go. Yeah, and you shouldn't, and see you where shouldn't it goes. fight it, even if, even if you think, oh, I don't know, I'd rather see him do this, but God, he really wants to do this. Yeah, and that's one thing, fortunately, I did early on, is I wrote it really vague. So people would come up and say cryptic things, but I didn't write myself into a corner. So as the thing went along, there are still lines from books I did. 10, 12 years ago where I go, oh, I think I'm starting to know what that meant. Oh, that's really interesting. But yeah, the, the trick is to make it always look like, oh, you had this stuff planned from day one <laughs> because you haven't tripped over yourself. You haven't had to do one of those, oh, uh, never mind, we're going to reboot everything because I've you know, written myself into a wall. Have you had sort of, um, have you had an epiphany in the process where you got to a certain point in the series and you went, oh, I can connect this and this and this and then this is happening. I think all these clues, like you have the same epiphany that the audience would have reading it. Yeah, which I think is good because if I didn't see it coming, chances are they didn't see it coming. Right. So if I can surprise myself, I figure I got a leg up on the guys that are trying to piece together the clues. Um, It happened recently when we got close to, when I got closer to killing off Hellboy. And I realized, going in, it was, it was the biggest story I'd ever come up with. And going into it, I don't remember now if I knew I was going to kill him off at the end. Because I always knew I was going to kill him off. And I kind of knew what beats were needed to get there. And it was like going into that story, suddenly I saw, oh, all the pieces are starting to line up. And I knew I would need characters to do particular things, but didn't really know what characters we're going to show up and do things. And then you started this story and you went, oh, wait a minute. If this guy's here, then he's the guy who's going to do this, which is going to make this guy do this. It's like that old mousetrap game. Yeah. You know, you don't realize till it starts going, oh, we're going to kick the, the guy on the, the thing. is going to go into that. And then, yeah. And so when that stuff started coming together, it was really exciting because at some point your brain, so on some level, at least my brain, is working much faster than I you know, can keep up with. And suddenly it's like, you've got all the pieces there and they start rattling together and you kind of go, Oh really? Oh, Oh, Oh. And you're holding your breath to see if it, it'll actually play out to the end. And that, that happened, you know, where I just went, Oh, and that's going to happen. That's, and that means, Oh, he's dead. Oh, and this is the guy who comes in and this is the guy here. Yeah. That was really, really smooth. It really, it doesn't have, I mean, there are plenty of these things that are a struggle, but that was one, and I've had a few cases like that over the years, where you go, I don't even feel like I made up that story. That story just kind of felt like I started it, and then it just kind of made it, you know, you, you put enough pieces there, and it, it just kind of put itself together. Yeah, because I think it's very hard to engineer a result. Like, it's very difficult. I mean, in some cases, I think you can, 
you can probably do it if you know if you have a very clear idea of like, well, here's a story, and I know where it starts and I know where it ends, and then the discovery is just going to be the process. But it definitely ends here. But you kind of finding this along the way, I think um, I think readers probably do feel like. <laughs> They're taking the journey with you at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you know, every I think every writer has got to have that ability to manufacture a story if they need to. You know, this plus this plus this will end up with this, and that's fine. And usually when I'm making up something, I know what kind of story I want, or I'm thinking of a certain kind of story, and then I start working on the ending. And if I can find, a, you know, an appropriate ending... Then I can fool with the middle, but I don't want to do one of those stories that just doesn't have an ending. Sure. Um, so there's that kind of mechanical thing. I've got some. I maybe have two or three points I need to hit, but then the magic stuff to me is what happens in the middle, the wandering around through the middle of a story, uh, which I think makes the stuff interesting. Because I do. I have seen things. I've read things where they're so by the numbers, they're so by the book. There's no, you know odd sidesteps along the way and uh, more and more I think my stuff is made out of the, the odd oh I didn't see that coming what does that mean how does that relate to this it's throwing all that odd stuff in there that only I would come up with that that's what makes me excited like reading comics or even seeing films is seeing stuff where you go nobody else would have done that yeah. only this guy would have thought of that and, you know like we talk about you know one guy doing the whole thing writing and drawing that's what you can really see in comics when it's a one man operation is nobody else would have brought that set of artistic things or weird quirky things and that's yeah. really where your voice comes out. That's yeah. really where people cuz do you feel like um do you feel like Hellboy is you or do you feel like he is a, a an aspirational character for you or is he just some completely other entity that isn't No, you? he's got to be me. Uh to some extent he's uh he's a little bit my father. Um but mostly me because having never written anything before, the only way I knew how to write the character was what would I say? I mean, it's weird when his set of problems are radically different than yours, but still you can always kind of go in and say, what would I say here? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the problems, though, are just basically like a, a camera filter. Like, problems are – it's problem solving, though, is – that's pretty fixed. There's yeah. only a handful of ways that people can really solve problems. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter if his <laughs> – whether his, he figures out his arm is a key or, or he figures out it doesn't really matter. Like it's, it's really the problem solving that's sort of the, the human right. element. And when you're, when you're drawing so much on your own way of solving problems, that's when it gets a little spooky because if you start taking a look at what you're doing, you can start going in and fixing it, going, well, yeah, I would do this, but you know, that's not going to make me look good or that's not going to make the character look good. What I found really interesting to do with the, with the book, and it happened relatively early, is saying, oh, I don't know why I came up with this particular bit and I don't want to analyze it too much. That's the bit I came up with. That's what the character did. Leave it for the shrink to sort it out <laughs> someday. Uh, because, I mean, Hellboy, he is not big on accepting... His place in the world. He'll do anything to dodge his place in the world. He tends to retreat a lot. He tends to, he's gone through periods where he just sits in a house full of ghosts and drinks for like months at a stretch. <laughs> and I just kind of go, well, I don't want to overanalyze that. But, it, you know, if I was the beast of the apocalypse and I became aware of that and, and started worrying about that, what would I do? Um, you know. He's. Not, I can't do those. I don't know how to do those. This is what a hero would do. I can only do. This is what this guy. Well, would if do. you if you wrote this is what a hero would do, then it then it becomes like that paint by the numbers sort of a thing. Oh, and then he's got to do this and rescue well, that person. And I and think I think some people write writing comics, and I don't read a lot of comics anymore, so I don't. You know, I might be way off, but it it occurred to me when I did read comics, some people write comics the way they think comics should be written. And I never approached Hellboy as, this is my comic, I'm going to write it the way 
comics have been. And not that I was trying to do anything radically different. I just didn't have anything in my mind that said, oh, it's a comic, so it's supposed to sound like this. I just said, I'm just going to trot out you know, whatever, I, what, whatever comes out. Which is also why I didn't think I'd be doing it for 20 years. <laughs> well, it's just, it's, it's the idea of taking a character like this and essentially, for lack of a better term, humanizing him in this set of circumstances that, again, really could be anything. It could be he has a, you know, he's forced into an office job that he hates, but then he's got to deal with it. It just so happens that he's the beast of the apocalypse. Like, right. It's almost incidental, all of those things, that it really is just about a guy who... Is, has sort of a weird identity crisis and is misplaced and is just trying to figure shit out at the same time of every day just trying to figure out how to move forward. Yeah, it, it uh, I mean, it, it got, especially, I mean, the Beast Apocalypse thing was, was one thing. You could kind of say, well, maybe I'm just not going to think about it. But once you've killed the guy off and you continue writing about him, <laughs> then it's really, you find yourself in a place where you go, it's getting more and more difficult to write about this guy's problem. And it's also more and more difficult for him to deny that there's a problem if he's actually dead and in hell. Yep. But I did have my therapist years ago in New York say this wonderful thing to me. It was actually quite chilling at the time. But I ended up using it in Hellboy. And it's like for how to deal with stuff. And I have, I have no idea. I have no idea what I must have said to the therapist that her response was um, – People are like houses, and the more you live, the more experiences you have, the more rooms in those house in the house. Uh, and with some people, I say we should go in and open these doors and explore these rooms. And with other people, I say keep that room locked. <laughs> so I have no idea what I said, but that became. I had this little therapy session for Hellboy in, in hell. Somebody gave him that piece of advice because he, Hellboy had done some particularly heinous thing in hell and said, I don't really know what this means. And their, their great advice was, don't ever think about that again. You'll be fine. <laughs> Did you ever talk Just to don't that? ever open that door. Did you ever talk to the therapist about that afterwards? No, I've, I, I've, I haven't talked to her. In, <laughs> I, though I'm probably due for a, a, a refresher, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it almost reminds me of a line from Mad Men, something really awful happens and it's uh, it's Don Draper and Peggy Elizabeth Moss character and he says something to her like she she does something really horrible and uh, he says it will shock you how easy it will be to forget this and put it behind you it will shock you and I, that was always kind of a that to me was sort of chilling like oh shit it is I we mean that, that is doors. one of those great kind of oh my god really that's yeah but that's that's kind of true. So you say you don't. So you you, st- you sort of stopped reading comics. Was was there a particular reason, or you just got interested in other forms of media? Yeah, you know, I, I guess, you know, my my real comic book fan period was relatively short when I was like, you know, end of high school through probably junior college. Um, and then, yeah, I, I mean, I look at a lot of stuff, but I, I just. It's it's nothing against the material. It's just uh, you know I've got sixty trillion books at home, so of I'm course. trying to work my way through my bookcases. Yeah, and uh, you know there's piles of comics that I intend to read one of these days, but yeah, just for whatever reason, it's just rare. Every once in a while, I'll I'll, I'll grab something and I won't be able to put it down. But it just doesn't happen very often. Uh, I don't know. Maybe because I work in comics, it isn't the the chosen escape. Well, you know? yeah, that's the thing is that, you know, for some people who the sort of the, the I don't know if danger is the right word, but something that can happen when you pursue something you love and that and then all of a sudden your hobby becomes your career. Yeah. Is that anything that gets close to that that's not your immediate work can feel like other work. Because yeah. you're you're probably reading it just you're not reading it as a as a regular fan it's like oh you're analyzing oh they did this in this panel no they took it at this story oh i see what they did there like it takes you out of it a bit well that's right if you're a filmmaker do you you know can you really appreciate a movie without going what lens was that (laughs) you know it's it's weird yeah i mean um certainly i don't i wouldn't read any comics probably around the same kind of subject matter that i do though i read that kind of fiction all the time books and stuff but um Though even that's gotten riskier or, or weirder because I know so many people who write that kind of stuff now. I generally just re, you know read stuff that have, 
that's by people that have been dead for a hundred years. So, okay. so that that means that I, on, you know it's, I don't get in trouble on Facebook if I sure. say that I didn't like the guy's new book because he's been dead a hundred years. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, you know, like I'm not a crime fiction guy, and Ed Brubaker gave me all his criminal graphic novels, and I, I you know, I I knew I should read them, and everybody loved them. But I'm not a crime guy. But one day I just kind of started leafing through one and started reading it, and I read them all. I couldn't put them down. That was the, you know, and not to say that there hasn't been great stuff in comics since then, but that's one of those rare cases, maybe because it was so much outside my normal type of subject matter that I, you know, I just loved them. So when you said you worked on Blade 2, did you board the film? Is it? No, I, um, yeah, my position on Blade 2 was really odd because it was really almost like just, Del Toro keeping me around to see if he could put up with me if we actually did make Hellboy. <laughs> um, no I'm, I'm not really cut out to be a production designer, but he brought me in. It was a really small, I mean, it was really small production that went really fast. Um, and he brought me in as one of the three or four, you know, uh, production design guys. So um, we scouted that location together, which was also very, I mean, to be, to spend three or four days in Prague with Del Toro, his first trip to Eastern Europe. That was, that was a pretty wild experience. He came into my office. You know, I was living in Portland at the time, came out here, had this crappy little production office, and he comes in my office. I've only been there about a week. And he came in and said, Magnus, Monday we're going to Prague. They have Kafka puppets. Yeah, we're, we're going to scout location, but we're going to find Kafka puppets. So... Uh, that's what we did. We we scouted locations and we weren't, you know, driving around the woods looking for some place that didn't really exist. Uh, you know, we were haunting puppet shops looking for a really good Kafka puppet. I wonder if he said it essentially in Eastern Europe just so that you could do that. No, it's because it was cheap. <laughs> in fact, in fact, I mean, I'm sure I, I'm not privy to all the ins and outs of that stuff but the movie was supposed to take orig- a place originally I think it was supposed to take place in Vegas so we were trying to find locations in Prague that could double for an American city and you really found yourself in these weird places where you'd say and I remember specifically one night there was a gas station scene that didn't make it into the film but finding a gas station that could kind of pass for an american gas station but you would literally have to put up some kind of sign over here to block a castle (laughs) or an old monastery or something and at some point you're going oh my god the production value for a movie about vampires is so great here Except that you're not using it. I mean, remember the, the scouting guys came in. They said, oh, you're making a vampire movie. Boom. Here's a ton of pictures of old monasteries, old churches. You could make the <laughs> no, no, greatest vampire movie. <laughs> like, no, we're looking for gas stations and an old factory. And yeah, it was weird. I mean, it is a vampire movie. I mean, the idea of, of uh, a race of vampires that consumes vampires, was that twisted my brain when I saw that. The first time I saw that, that one, that first scene where he goes into the, they're like, oh, we'll help you. And then his fucking face opens up. I, I was in love. I love the original Blade, too. I fucking right. love the original Blade. Uh, but the second one just, you know, it's, it's again, it's, you know, Guillermo watching the stuff that he does. It's like what you were saying before. It's no one else could do it that way. It's so specific. Yeah. And I, I, and I never read. David Goyer's original script, but I know there had to be a lot of Del Toro added to whatever Goyer had had originally come up with. I'd be willing to bet Goyer didn't have an autopsy scene. I don't think... Had Del Toro made The Hobbit, I'm sure he would have ended up finding a way to put an autopsy in there. (laughs) He loves... He loves internal organs. Um, But, uh, yeah, it was... I mean, it was a great... It was a great experience, you know, just... We had so much fun. I, again, I, I wasn't really suited to be there. I, you know, I did some design stuff on the film that made it into the film, but yeah, it was. Uh, uh, but you know, we we had a good time. How involved with you? How involved were you with the animated uh, films that you animated? Not films? not nearly as much. I I co-wrote the stories. Uh, with a, a friend of mine, a guy named Tad Stone, when they when they talked about animation, I said, 
there's a guy I know who's in animation or has been in animation. He was at uh, uh, Disney TV for ages, and he was a huge Hellboy fan. And I think he must have been between jobs, but he had wanted he had actually pitched Hellboy to Disney, which I would have loved to be in the room for that. Uh, <laughs> so I knew I kn- I knew he knew the material. And I knew, you know, and, and I thought, if you need somebody to run these animated shows, get this guy. Rather than me trying to go in and explain to somebody who's not familiar with the material what it's supposed to be, here's a guy who knows Hellboy backwards and forwards and will speak the same language. So he went in and he ran those shows. And uh, we, he and I wrote the stories together. But, uh, you know, my feeling with these things generally is I'm not an anim animation guy so leave it to the animation guys to to do that i i don't think they wanted the films to look like my work which is great because then you then i you know then i can actually watch them if if you try to make a show that looks like my work all i'm gonna see is what it what you got wrong right and then i'd sp- then i would have been involved unfortunately a lot saying no it should be like this it should be like that but if you get a style that's completely different, then it's somebody else's job to keep that style consistent. So really only the story, I think, was my involvement in that. Uh, and how do you find storytelling in, you know, between, like, wh- what are the important things that you learn about telling a story in a comic versus in an animated series versus in a film? Um, well, definitely you need, you know, it's, it's a shorter story um i don't know um do they all feel like the same thing no no because the comic is at this point certainly i know the comic is going to ramble on so you know with a film i think you definitely need to tie up the loose end so del toro didn't um at least with the first one he tied it up in a pretty neat bow so that's I think the the major difference. It's gotta it's gotta explain what it is, it and where it's going, and then it's gotta get there. It can't just be oh this is the first of thirty two potential films. <laughs> There's one main quest and not a lot of side quests. Basically. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, that's there- the main thing. And, and actually, it's funny because a lot of filmmakers I find these days are making a movie that feels like it was meant to be an eight-hour movie. There's so much extra shit in that movie that, I mean, maybe I'm just more old-fashioned, but I would like a much simpler story. And then if we've got to add stuff, we can add stuff. But don't start with a thing that's so damn complicated because at some point you've got to edit this thing. And if you and if you put in, we got to get this, to open this, to do this, to do this, to do this, then there's a lot of mood stuff and character stuff that you're going to have to cut because you've created this elaborate puzzle. And, and for the movie to make any sense, all those puzzle pieces still need to be there. So Del Toro complicated my stuff a lot more than I did in the comic. Um, and maybe it's just you know the modern thinking with the way you know films are. Uh, you, you know, it's it's to me, it almost seems like computer game things. So we got to jump through this hoop to get into this room to do this, to do this, to do you know, to do this. And I would have found much simpler ways to to do that stuff. And when you're writing in the comics, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so even though the comic rambles on forever, if I've got this complicated, we've got to get from this place to this place, or we've got to find out where this is. Well, then a ghost walks into the room and says, it's there. As opposed to, well, there's a puzzle, and we've got to get this piece of paper, and we've got to fly to Russia and open this thing up to get to this. To this. You know, I would have just gone, oh, uh, there's a ghost that will help them. Well, also, but also in, in live-action film, it's just really fun to watch Hellboy punch a car or something. You yeah. know, like, so there's, there are those elements of the storytelling, too, where it's like, well, we got to put this in because that'll just look really awesome. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, one of the, I don't know if it was a major problem on the Hellboy thing, but certainly with the first Hellboy movie, I'm assuming Del Toro never thought there'd be a second. So he was taking so many bits, that not only bits that he loved from the comic, and trying to squeeze them in there, like Hellboy hauling the corpse around on his back. You know, he had to get that in there, find a way to get that in there. Um but he also had so many of his own scenes f- 
from other movies that he hadn't made. I mean, I, th- I think Hellboy, on one hand, he loved what I had done. He was clearly had real affection for, for the comic, but he also saw it as a vehicle for other moments that he he'd wanted to put on film. So the, if I remember correctly, the, there's a scene on a rooftop with a little kid where they're watching uh, Liz Sherman on a date and helping this kid yeah. are watching that scene. I believe that was in one of his other screenplays. That, oh. that was a scene he always wanted to do. So um, yeah, that's where I think I got lucky. He saw not only what he liked about Hellboy, but he saw it as a place for him to bring all his other stuff, which I think also is why Hellboy in the film is that kind of awkward, adolescent, lovesick puppy thing, which I think is much more a del Toro thing than a, than a me thing. Um, so, because my Hellboy is older, but immediately he shifted the character of Hellboy to being this much more, you know, kind of innocent, childlike, or adolescent-y kind of thing. Which sort of, which, which you totally buy into because of the way that he was raised. Right. To essentially isolated from the world. Yeah, that was one of the, the, I think maybe even the first time we met, he said, you know, when he said, I want to make it more like the comic, that probably led into the conversation of, in the comic, everybody knows who he is. Is that going to be just too weird for a movie audience? So, you know, he wanted to change that probably almost from day one, making him like a, a big secret thing. Do you, are there still things after 20 years that you feel like you haven't figured out about him yet? Or do you feel like, oh, I know, you know, you know every square inch of him at this point? Um, well, it's interesting. I do think I know him pretty well, but the structure of the comic is always strange because he shows up on Earth in 1944, and then the first full-length story about him took place in 94. And over the years, I've dropped a bunch of short stories in this big gap where he's just kind of wandered around doing stuff. And we're doing more and more stories while I'm, you know, I've killed him off and I'm continuing this thing with him in hell. At the same time, we're talking about more and more stories that take place in his early years. So I actually just did a, a graphic novel last year that takes place when he's like three years old. So as I do more stuff in his past, I start piecing together his past more. So there's a lot of still kind of blurry. I have a vague idea of his you know, growing up years and his early years as a, you know, BPRD agent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm starting to play more with, you know, doing these, you know, fleshing these things out. But it, so it's very strange to have a full grown character over here and not really having dealt at all with his adolescence and his childhood. Yeah. Um, Cause you still in filling that gap, you sort of know where he ends up in 1994. So ultimately you have to kind of figure out how to do stuff that makes sense that gets him to that place. Yeah. And, and you also have to kind of say, wait a minute, he can't do this cause he would have mentioned that before and he can't do this <laughs> and he can't do this. You can't really, you know, you can't have Galactus show up and eat the planet because people would have gone, Oh yeah. Remember that thing? They, people would still be talking about it. Um, so <laughs> it almost sounds harder to write. Actually, it, it not almost, it sounds harder to write that way. It is hard, but it's also it, interesting cause it does give you some real parameters to work with. Um, and I've come up with a couple ways to do things that I'm, I'm actually pretty happy with. It, it's funny. I mean, the way all the Hellboy stuff and the expansion of the Hellboy stuff, the way all this stuff is gone, there's never been anybody saying, we want more Hellboy comics. I mean, other than fans. You know, on the publishing end, nobody's ever said, we want more Hellboy comics. So it's always been, well, huh, that's kind of, it'd be kind of funny to do something with this. And then the more you think about it, you go, oh, yeah, that would be good. And, oh, yeah, oh, crap, that star- story started writing itself. So now i got to call the editor and say, do we have room in the schedule for this many more books? And can you find me an artist to do this, this, and this? So this thing has, has swelled up over 20 years just because these things that I thought were self-contained kind of keep spinning off into other things. Has there been anything that... You've beat your head against the wall to try to make work and that you love the idea and you just couldn't make it work. 
Um, probably. More often, yeah, I'm sure there is that. Um, and there's stuff I'm just afraid to tackle because I'm, you know, I, I, I'm okay as a writer for what I do, but there are certain things I go, it'd be great to do this. Well, shit, I don't know how to do that. So I just run away from it. Me, me being me. Um, but there's a lot of stuff. I, I've, I've come up with a lot of the history and the, the backstory to a lot of these other characters and the way, you know, this whole world that I've got going on. And there are a lot of things where I go, yeah, I want to tell that story, but it doesn't relate. It's like Tolkien with the Silmarillion. It's like, yeah, you have the history of every hilltop and river and piece of wall in your world but who the fuck wants to read about that <laughs> you know so you go i have all these great little bits but they're not a story they're a, they're a dry as shit history lesson um but if i can find a story or if i can create a story where i can reference those bits uh, so there's a lot of that there's a lot of that rattling around a lot of that that backstory information rattling rattling around in my head and looking for a place where that stuff will naturally just kind of well because you've spun off abe and bprd like they've been separate you've spun those off so at what point what point do you feel like oh this sort of ancillary thing maybe it's time to explore it more as its own thing yeah well it's you know when i when i started the, the series it was called Hellboy because I couldn't come up with a name for a team. Right. You know, I, I, I team Hellboy. Yeah, no, no I don't. Hellmen, oh. Hellboys in yeah. the hood. Oh no, no. Okay. None, right. none of those crossed my mind. Well, we should have been friends back then. I know. If only, God knows where I'd be now. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm probably sitting on a giant pile of money, and, and the two of us suing each other over who gets it. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> that that is always the problem with collaborating. Um, I guess that's true. But uh, I had in mind because I was a Marvel Comics guy. I had in mind some kind of a team book, and I couldn't come up with a name for a team. And the only name I'd ever come up with that I liked was Hellboy. So I thought, well, okay, we got the. We'll just name. We'll just name the book Hellboy, and then we'll have this team, and then I can just throw initials on the team. So it does because it doesn't have to be the banner of a comic. Um, and I didn't know who Elbe was. I just thought he's going to be the, the big guy. He's going to be the muscle uh, who has this supernatural background that I'm never going to go into. And then once I started figuring out who that guy was and he became really interesting, I had all these other characters I'd created for this team that I had – I won't say I had no interest in them, but I knew they were never going to fit into the book. Uh, there was just – I didn't have – I had so much of this guy's story to tell. I didn't see I was ever going to have room for those guys. Um, so we spun off the BPRD book as an experiment and then brought in John Arcudi, who's a brilliant writer who I've known for a long time. And he made those characters. I mean, I gave them what, him what I knew of those characters, but he really turned those characters into human beings. Um, so I'm, you know, a lot of this expansion is because I know there's another writer who can make something out of this stuff. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, it's also... As a creator, being comfortable enough, I think it's very important to, you know, understand what your own interests or limitations might be and to say, well, I'm going to turn this over to someone else because I feel like it's better for that story as opposed to saying, I have to do everything myself. That's a very, those are very two distinct personalities. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's the practical thing of time, you know, there's just not enough time to do everything else. Um... But also, yeah, John is a much better people person. Doesn't necessarily apply to him in real life. But as a writer, <laughs> he, is, he is certainly the humanist of the group. So more and more my role with all the, all the stuff has been the big picture and the big apocalyptic-y kind of things and the history and the backstory and uh, the broad strokes of, of who these characters are, almost like on a symbolic level. And John then takes what I've given him and deals with them as actual human beings. Uh, and that, if there's any secret to the success of that line of books, it's because between John and I, especially on the BPRD stuff, uh, he's made these guys into human beings. 
I mean, Hellboy is me, good, bad, or otherwise, but the other characters, the personality of the other characters, other than just the sketch I did of them, um, the personalities have really been defined by John. And now Scott Alley, who's been editing the book almost since the very beginning, he's taken over writing the Abe Sapien stuff. So, again, the beauty of this line of books is there are just three guys that have been working together John's probably been on it for 15, 16 years. Scott's been there almost from the beginning. I've been there from the beginning. So we have three guys who have been able to steer this whole thing as opposed to, you know, you look at mainstream comics, every couple of months, this guy takes over, and the first thing he wants to do is say, that other guy's stuff didn't happen. Or, (laughs) you know, that was a dream. Or, you know, whatever it is. You have guys constantly kind of coming in and undoing or redoing what the other guy has done. And we've been able to keep it a consistent thing for 20 years. It's it's this very similar thing in nature where you hear these hor- the, the, the horrible, cold truth of, you know, oh, yes, if a new alpha lion male comes in, it will just kill all the cubs that were there before and then immediately impregnate everyone so that it can have its own uh, DNA, you know, uh, carrying on. It's the same thing. And, it, and, I, and I, you know, in some, in some senses, I think that's, you know, in, in, in comics or film or television, a lot, this happens a lot with television series where a new showrunner comes on or new right. shows change direction. And it can be good because you get variety, you get different points of view, but also or over the long term. it can be one of those, what happened to this show? I liked it last yeah, week. Yeah, no, no consistency. Like, yeah. the show, like a show just loses consistency and you go, oh, well, all that stuff they were setting up before, they just dropped. And then what's this other stuff? I was invested in that. So it really, I think it really probably does help a lot that you can grow, you your, and your team can grow with the thing, you know, over the last two decades. Yeah, it's, I mean, there are things that, I set up in the very beginning that are still playing out. You know, the fact that, again, like I said, I've written it very vague at the beginning, so I didn't write myself into a corner early on. So when John and I are talking or Scott and I are talking, if it's a good conversation, there's usually a point where where one of us will blurt out, and that'll look like we planned it from the beginning. (laughs) It's it's always one of those goals, coming up with something where you go, the kids are going to think we planned that in 94. (laughs) Stupid kids. (laughs) Little do they know. We'll manage to fool them again. Um, So one thing I love to ask writers um, is when... You know, when you when you're faced with a deadline and you're essentially you've hit the wall of I don't know what the fuck to do next. I don't know what he's supposed to say. I don't know where he's supposed to go. How do you get through that? Do you step away? Do you push through it? What do you what do you do? I call the editor and beg him to tell me what the character should do. (laughs) Uh, Please. Generally, he won't tell me. Uh, He'll give me that kind of. That kind of, well, think about it. And he'll do a therapy thing, you know, like, you got to think about this, or what about this, or have you thought about this? But he's never telling me the answer. I just want the answer. I want the fast solution. Um, Tell him to go right. Yeah. The one time I really did hit a wall one time where I realized the story had escalated beyond what it was supposed to be. And I realized as I got closer to the ending, because like I mentioned before, I come up with the ending early. But the story in the middle had swelled up so big that the ending wasn't going to work. And I was getting pretty close to where the ending was. And I just said, I don't know what to do. And he said, take – and this is very rare advice for an editor. And the book was late. He said, take the weekend off and just think about it. You know, just you know, reread what you did, blah, blah, blah. Ask yourself questions. And it's like, I just want you to tell me. I know you know what the ending should be. Um, but that was pretty good. He, he's, he's very good at making me examine what I've done and, and look at you know, what, what things need to be. Also, I mean, Scott and John will probably be the first guys to admit that they have no idea most of the time what the hell I'm doing. So it's like, why are you asking us? The the entire future of this whole series is some weird mystery that only I I know. So <laughs> you're the only guy who knows what it's supposed to be. Do you ever envision a time where you would just let someone else take it over? Or do you feel like when you decide you're done, that's it and it's done? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's been easy to turn over to some extent hell, uh, the BPRD and Abe Sapien to these other guys, even though we've 
I'm I'm on there as co-writer. I am kind of helping steer the book, but it, it really means here's where these things are going eventually. You your job as the writer, because I don't want to step on the writer's toes. We agree on where everything's going, and it's up to you, the writer, mm-hmm. to get them there. I don't want to micromanage as we go along. Should he be using a car? Should he be using a bus? Maybe you should take the train. That, that's you guys figure that stuff out. Um, so it's easy to hand those characters over to these guys as long as they know they're going where they're supposed to go. But also, the whole series is meant to be a finite series. So it, it's not designed to go on forever. And if you look at the state of the world in the BPRD universe, it's getting so bad so fast, it can't go on forever. There's no way to fix the damage. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, that's what, it's how, uh, you know, if you watch any kind of... Uh uh, sci-fi or supernatural show it's you know the t- t- TV anyway you get at a certain point it's like this is the worst thing that's ever happened and then they solve it and the next thing is like well how do we top the worst thing that ever I guess we have to come up with a new worst thing and then after like five six seven seasons you're like I don't the world the world would have fucking blown up by now I don't know I yeah. don't know I, I said to, to John recently I said we should do a story John you should do a story set in a coffee shop it's just guys dealing with the realities of gigantic chunks of the country have disappeared. Are we still going to be getting a shipment of coffee? You know, it's like, how does this affect guys on the street level? Um, and, and, you know, it's worked out nicely that the BPRD usually deals with big stories, but Abe Sapien is on the ground traveling around America just seeing how fucked up everything is, you know, on the ground. So... Yes, the plan has always been we're just going to keep getting it worse and worse and worse. There'll be certain things that happen that make it not walking dead. It's not going to be that grim and miserable and and kind of hopeless all the way along. Um, But we're definitely going someplace. Mm -hmm. And at no point is it, oh, wait, there's another Earth. We're all going to flee to the way. I I found an amulet that reverses everything. Because maybe. Maybe it doesn't. I don't want to say that that's not going to happen. But no, there's no no magic button that's going to fix everything. And it always seemed like in Marvel Comics, Galactus could come down and eat a city. And then somehow next week, the city got put back together. Well, he Uh, threw up to keep his figure. Yeah. He threw up the city. That. Yeah. He threw it up. He threw up in another place. There's a gag I can't use now. God damn it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've, we've he, got... He ate New York and threw it up uh, in Michigan, and it became Detroit. Well, the... <laughs> what? Come on. What's wrong with that? The, the, a lot of those cities are kind of the same. Um, <laughs> the editor does have a big map in his office with pins in it to show what parts of the country we've completely destroyed. <laughs> so if guys going from this place to this place, you've got to avoid... You know these two states because no nothing can live there anymore. That's right. Yeah, there's the the longer <laughs> you're essentially just creating a steeplechase for you to ultimately each time every time you set up a new rule, it's just your world. You know your possibilities shrink. Well, it is one of those things where you just kind of go, wait a minute, we're planning on doing this for a certain period of time. But are we destroying things so fast that there's not going to be any place for there's not going to be any solid ground for anybody to stand on, you know, two years from now? So you do have to kind of watch how the series is escalating and maybe let's not destroy that entire continent this week because we might need it for something. But but it's definitely going someplace. And what's very odd is at least so far what we've seen of hell looks like a much friendlier place to hang out. So Hellboy's actually kind of on vacation compared to what's going on on Earth. So are you still, as we're sort of wrapping this up, are you st- do you still feel excited about it? How do you find excitement in it, or is it just you just feel it? Yeah, I, I had gotten to the point, uh, you know, around the time of the second movie, I would stopped drawing it. I, I'd gotten so hung up on my own, you know, being too much of a perfectionist and, and, and drawing stuff and I wasn't happy with anything I did and I, I stepped away and I was just writing for a few years um, but I missed drawing and once killed off Hellboy I knew that you know putting him in hell was going to be a lot of fun for me as an artist um, 
And right now, the last couple of weeks, I've been working on something that isn't Hellboy, and I'm dying. I'm dying to get back to drawing Hellboy. So that's pretty weird, because before I did Hellboy, I'd never done any character for more than a few months or maybe maybe a year at most. And 20 years drawing Hellboy, I really haven't wanted to do anything else. Oh, that's, so that's pretty good. That's nice to hear. Yeah. Well... I uh, am. This has been a really fantastic chat, and I hope you had fun. And is there? And do you, what, do you want to plug anything? I know you're doing. Is you're doing a signing at Meltdown? I am. Which I didn't think it was a cool enough store for me to shop. I mean, I didn't think I was cool enough to shop in that store. Oh so, come on! So when when they agreed to do this big Hellboy Day thing, I was uh, you know thrilled that they invited me. <laughs> what's, um, the, what's the date? What is the date? It's May twenty second. March twenty second. It's one of the M months. March twenty second. I think I probably have the details right here. Um. Uh, yes. March twenty. Oh, March twenty. Oh, March twenty second. Yeah. Hellboy Day. Yeah. Meltdown and Comics. we've got there's a they're putting out a comic. Dark Horse putting out a comic that's like a sampler. It's got some of the older stories and one new story for which I believe is free for people who may have not ever actually read this stuff. And we've got a new art book coming out that's some of my favorite pieces from the last 20 years that kind of show the evolution from just this one little Hellboy comic up through this big expanded universe. So, uh, is it just nice. lore that you kind of drew him on a whim at a comic convention or I, it, it's, it's, well, there's a little bit more to it, but for the most part, people got to the point where they had, you know, they had Batman drawings or whatever by me and they started asking me, well, just draw something for fun. Draw, draw what you want to draw. And there was no conscious thought of designing a character, but I drew this lunky monster kind of guy a couple times. And then I did a piece, I was doing a convention and they said, give us a piece of art for the convention book. And I drew this lunky monster and there was a spot, uh, he had like a belt and there was just a blank spot in the belt, and I wrote in Hellboy, and I just thought it was funny, you know. And and, and you know, then years later, a couple of years later, when I started thinking about doing my own comic, I was like, well, I've only made up one name that I thought was kind of funny, and it was funny. It was important for me that it, it was a funny name because by then I was in my mid thirties. So I couldn't do some deadly, serious demon slayer, blah, blah, blah. But the name Hellboy was funny. And I thought, as a 30-some-odd-year-old person, I could tell a guy I'd draw Hellboy. I couldn't say I'd draw Axelor Demon Slayer. You know? <laughs> so I, I stuck with the funny name. Uh, so, yeah, it really it did start as, as just me drawing something for fun, which is probably why I still like it 20 years later. Because I didn't say, I'm going to make up a character that I think will sell, or I'm going to make up a character that uh, I think somebody will make a movie out of. I'm going to make up a character that is made entirely out of all the shit that I like. Which is the best lesson for anyone creating anything. It's just it doesn't, make stuff that's fun for you. It doesn't mean it's going to work, but it does mean if you do that and it does work, you're stuck drawing the book that you actually want to draw. <laughs> well, not only that, but if you do it and it doesn't work, but it's still fun for you, then a lot of times that's still enough. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. I thought I'm going to do this thing. I'll only get a chance to do it once. And then I'll crawl back and do Batman or whatever the hell I can get my hands on. But I'll be able to look back and say at least once I put something out there that kind of reflects, you know, if what you, I do. Because the other side sucks either way. If you do something that you know you don't like, but you do it because you're pandering or you're trying to chase something and it doesn't work, then you get mad at yourself because you're like, fuck, I didn't even like that thing to begin with. And then if it does work, then you're stuck with it. Well, I mean, Image Comics had come out a couple years before and I got, you know, I heard through channels if I wanted to do a book for them, I could do it. And I started making up something and I thought, well, you know, at the time I was drawing Batman and people liked the way I do Batman. I could make up some kind of dark Batman kind of thing. And I thought... It'll take me a year to do it. Chances are I'll hate every minute of doing it. And my luck, it'll be the first one of these books that doesn't sell. So I will have wasted a year doing something for no money, and I didn't enjoy doing it. So if I'm going to do this, let me just do something that would be fun. Listen up, people. Take heed. This is good advice. If I can do it, I'm not saying anybody can do it, but certainly... 
there's nothing special about me. I just, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly evidence that it's possible for this shit to work. Excellent. Well, it's good to see you, and nice good luck with you. Hellboy Day. And uh, I probably, I probably will see you. I'll probably go to Meltdown. Oh, cool. Uh, we have a, we have our space there, so I'll, uh, that would be a good day to go because I can totally just park right in the back, <laughs> which makes it very easy for That's me to nice. get in. I'm excited because it says the Meltdown promo says that there'll be special guests, so I may be the opening act for clowns and and a puppet show. <laughs> I'm hoping for a puppet show. I don't know a Hellboy puppet show. Uh, well, maybe I don't know. No, I think it's, out with a human I just lady? figure it's gonna be some circus thing. If if a clown comes out and starts doing a bunch of ridiculous stuff, and the clown rips off the makeup and the weird European clown costume uh, that it got in Prague, and we find out it's Guillermo, then I will be so that'd be funny. Delighted, that'd be funny. Yeah, he is supposed to be filming in Toronto, so if he shows up, it'll be a surprise <laughs> to us all. Uh, excellent, good to see you, Mike. All right, uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist for a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and $55 of free postage. That's Stamps.com. Enter the promo code Nerdist. Ladies and gentlemen, Welcome to the 65th National Finals of Distinguished Young Women. Every year, one girl from every state leaves her family, her whole life behind, for two weeks and spends each day training, practicing, preparing. Because to win this competition, she needs to wow a panel of judges with her academic record, her athletic ability, her speaking skills, and a show-stopping talent. I met her and I was like, she's going to win. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. When I sing that song about being a black woman in America, there's going to be backlash about that. Oh, just so happy. So happy. I don't want to see them. I don't want to talk to them. And then we stayed with them for the next year, unpacking just what happened those two weeks in Mobile. I'm Shimoliai, and from Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.